When it comes to maximizing time in the uplands, without fail, Onyx Hunt is my most valuable tool. From planning my next hunt through a new bird cover to navigating in the field, Onyx Hunt is truly with me wherever I go. With detailed mapping and satellite imagery, along with a multitude of map layers from land access to forestry and habitat information and easy-to-use tools to mark, measure, and catalog important information, Onyx Hunt seamlessly integrates digital scouting with boots-on-the-ground time in the field. With offline mapping and Apple CarPlay integration, you are free to explore the wild landscapes our beloved upland birds inhabit. Planning your next move in the uplands begins with knowing where you stand, and for me, that starts and stops with Onyx Hunt. Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your Onyx Hunt subscription. When the miles rack up faster than your flush count, that's when you'll truly appreciate your hunting vest from Final Rise. Built for the uplands and proudly sewn in the USA, the complete lineup of hunting vests from Final Rise, from their all-new Summit XT down to the minimalist Sidekick system, are all built upon the foundational load-bearing waist belt and low-profile shoulder strap system, which allow you to carry all the gear you need and do so comfortably while maintaining your ability to move freely and perform when you need to most. With a complete lineup of accessories and newly released performance field apparel, Final Rise has the gear you need to help you get the most out of every mile and every flush. Final Rise gear is built for the uplands. Get yours today at FinalRise.com. This episode of the Bird Shop Podcast is presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. On this episode of the show, we're talking with Bob Owens of Lone Duck Outfitters and Kennels. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 257. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Birdshot Podcast. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the show. We've got a great conversation coming up with Bob Owens, talking flushing dogs, retriever training, some grouse hunting, and previewing an upcoming event that he and I will both be at. We will chat with Bob in just a moment. I do have a couple items of note for the listeners out there, and I want to take a quick second to thank Patreon patrons of the Birdshot Podcast. Those of you out there making voluntary contributions in support of the show to keep these conversations coming your way. Your support is greatly appreciated. Those patrons are eligible for bonus content, some Patreon giveaways, and the Bird Chat Podcast canned coolers and stickers gift pack, of which I've got three sitting on my workbench ready to hit the mail. I always love this part. I'm looking at three envelopes from new patrons, one from Georgia, one from Texas, and one from Kansas. All over the map, as much as I am a Great Lakes grouse hunter, and we talk about that plenty on the show. We do have listeners from around the country and guests, of course. And it's always just fun to connect with folks and know that there are those of you out there listening from all across the uplands. So you can learn more about that and sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Uh, here's a reminder. I haven't said this in a while. If you haven't, please 
subscribe and follow the show in your podcast apps and players. Leave a rating, leave a review, share an episode, tell a friend. All of those little things do go a long way in supporting the Birdshot podcast as well, above and beyond what you already do by listening. So thank you for taking a moment to do that as well. All right, I'm coming to you on a ridiculously pleasant January 31st here from Duluth, Minnesota. I can't believe it. I'm looking at my weather station. It says 50.7 degrees. I don't know that it's that warm, but it does feel like it. Uh, We're definitely mid to upper 40s. Might be a little sunlight on the weather station there, but needless to say, it is very warm and very unusual for January 31st. After I wrap up recording this intro, I have getting a backyard campfire started up on the agenda this evening. I'm going to get the boys out there and we're going to enjoy the weather while we can because I think we're probably not out of the winter yet and there will be some more winter weather on the way but for now it's blue sky sunny and feels like t-shirt weather to be honest. But with that said January 31st means when you're listening to this it will already be February and that means there are a couple upcoming events. I have mentioned them already. I will mention them again. Bob and I will talk about the Siwi Show, Southeastern Wildlife Exposition. That's coming up in a couple of weeks. I will be there as well as our guest today, Bob. We'll both be down there. Very much looking forward to that. I was just emailing the folks at Marshware Clothing Company. They're down in Charleston. I have not yet had a chance to connect with them in person, but they'll be at the show. I'll be talking with them while I'm down there. So Siwi Show is coming up. Hopefully see some of you down at the Quail Village while I am there working the Upland Gun Company booth for the weekend. And after that, a couple weeks after that, we've got Pheasant Fest, the first three days in March in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. I will be there as well. Upland Gun Company, of course, partnering up with Onyx Hunt and Final Rise. We're going to have a big booth at the show. Onyx has got some things going on in and around the show. They will once again be hosting their after party offline at Pheasant Fest on Friday, March 1st at 9 p.m. at the Ramcota's Grand Rushmore Hall. Be live music from the Damn Jammers and a chance to win some great Upland prizes with public access pull tabs, free beer from Line Kugels, and you can learn more about South Dakota's new public access to habitat program that is fundamentally changing how we look at private land access. Not only that, we've got live music on Friday night. We also have live music the night before, Thursday night, Trampled by Turtles, their Pheasants Forever Concert for Conservation. That's going on Thursday night. And with that in mind, Onyx is giving one lucky subscriber and a friend tickets, VIP passes, one-night lodging, and daily admission to the 2024 Pheasant Fest and Quail Classic ahead of that concert on Thursday, February 29th. All you got to do to sign up for that giveaway is click the link in the show notes of this episode titled Onyx Hunt Pheasant Fest Giveaway. So once again, don't miss the Onyx Hunt offline party on Friday, March 1st. And definitely don't miss your chance to see Trampled by Turtles live on Thursday, February 29th. I will be at both of those events as long as I don't end up sick as I did last year at Pheasant Fest. So definitely hope to see a lot of familiar faces and new faces at those two events upcoming over the course of the next month. One more thing, almost forgot, as you will hear towards the end of the episode, Bob has made available a discount for his Force Fetch program video course. You can use the promo code BIRDSHOT to save a little money and sign up for that as well. I'll throw a link to that in the show notes. And remember, that's promo code BIRDSHOT. So we got Onyx giveaways, we got discounts from Bob, we got upcoming events, all kinds of stuff going on. 
But for now, let's welcome into the conversation and onto the Birdshot podcast of Lone Duck Outfitters and Kennels, Bob Owens. All right, buddy, we're rolling. My guest today, Bob Owens of Lone Duck. Is it still the Lone Duck Chronicles, isn't it? Lone or is it the Lone Ducks. Duck Podcast? <laughs> Lone Duck's Gun Dog Chronicles. It's <sighs> a mouthful. There we go. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Right, right, yeah. Well, that's all right. We got you on today, buddy. Where are you right now? I am currently in Charleston, South Carolina. Oh, no this kidding. is the winter trip. So I'm from central New York, okay. just north of Syracuse. And every winter for, I think, the last eight or nine years, we travel south to train the retrievers in beautiful weather. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, all right, as a Minnesota guy here, now we could get into how we're not really having a winter this year, but obviously I'm still looking out the door at snow. What what does Charleston have, have to offer at, at the moment, weather-wise? Uh, the first few days I got here, I brought the cold with me, as everybody likes to tease, but realistically today i was in jeans and a t-shirt and wish i had a pair of shorts to change into i mean it was <laughs> it was gorgeous out you know tomorrow's supposed to be 70 degrees it's such a great place to train i've built up great friendships and relationships here so it's like a a month here and then i travel to camden south carolina and spend the next two months in camden okay which is more inland and is colder so i'll probably be in 40s 50s and 60s there yeah what does the what does the change in geography do for you and the dogs? Different grounds? That's a really good question. It's definitely different grounds. Okay. You know, their grass species is different. And even just acclimating dogs to new land features mm. and water features compared to my everyday training grounds in New York. Sure. I have 50 acres that we train on, and then I lease 150 acres. But after halfway through the summer, it's kind of hard to switch things up and get the dogs not confused. That's the wrong word, but create more experiences. Once they see that pond in every corner of it, they know what they're doing. So when you come down here and you get new ponds, you can challenge them again and push them past their comfort zone and continue building. So it's, it's great to get away and, and do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's very cool. I knew you, I knew you traveled south i guess i whether you told me or not i didn't know you were right there in charleston which is fitting as that's where i will be headed in a couple of weeks and i know you'll be there as well which makes sense now i didn't i didn't actually know you were in charleston right now <laughs> yeah yeah i mean see so we're, what he's talking about is the big seaweed event the southeastern wildlife expo and it is massive people come from all over the southeast to enjoy it and it's 10 minutes away from where i live very cool. It's pretty well, awesome. we will we'll touch on that maybe maybe towards the end, but I want to I want to rewind a little bit. And man, you've never I've never had you on the Birdshot podcast. Listeners, maybe listeners of your show as well are familiar, but I'd hate to overlook that. Why don't you just kind of introduce yourself a little bit and tell us what keeps you busy in the world of hunting and specifically gun dogs? Yeah, awesome, man. It's funny. I feel like we know each other, but we haven't met yet. So it's, right. <laughs> it's, I appreciate you having me on your show. Bob Owens, my company is called Lone Duck Outfitters and Kennels. I'm a professional retriever trainer. I train duck dogs and competition dogs primarily. Uh, back in the day, you know, I needed to 
stop eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So any dog that came in, I'd train. So I've done drought dars, <laughs> GSPs, Griffons. I own a English setter that I absolutely adore and grouse and woodcock hunt with. I mean, that's like my little getaway from dealing with Labradors and Chessies and Goldens. I've been doing this professionally for, I think, 10 years now. Before that, Lone Duck was just a, a brand for the industry. I wanted to create a lifestyle brand that Anyone who loved their gun dogs could wear that hat and show their pride for our sport. And it took me all over the country slinging t-shirts and hats. And then I got an opportunity to train for another professional trainer as his young gun dog guy. Did that for a year, built my credibility, built my skill set, and then went home. And so I still sell t-shirts and hats. I still sell training gear on our website. We have online training courses. We have our Patreon. We built a podcast over the last three or four years now that has done a, a nice job and has been really fun to do. Instagram and YouTube. And so it's just kind of my goal is to train people's dogs. And then if you can't send me your dog, let me teach you how to do it yourself through sure. YouTube and Patreon. Yeah. Oh, man. Little bits and pieces that, again, I, I had kind of like you, I guess. I probably have a little bit of a story in my mind of, of who you are, but it'd be fun to dig into this a little bit. All right. First question. Do you still like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? <laughs> yeah, dude. I I had one today. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. You know, I, I can't remember the last time I wasn't, I wouldn't say like I was the, I didn't eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day when I was a kid, but I I really like them, and it's been a long time since I've had one. Our kids don't really eat them. I got two young boys, and that's mm -hmm. not really on the menu. But I guess now I'm thinking about peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yeah, so it's kind of the the quintessential peanut butter and jelly can be in the back seat of your truck, and you yep. can make it in two minutes, eat it in one minute, and be back to work. And back in the day, man, I couldn't rub two nickels together, so. <laughs> You know, you're just eating on a budget and trying to build a business and hustle. And yeah. so it's it's covered a lot of bases, but now it's tuna packets. That was Ooh. a great invention for us dog yeah. trainers and PBJs and leftovers. That's a good, from way the to, before. good way to go. Good protein fix. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Do you have a go to peanut butter and a go to jelly? Or are you not that Ooh. picky? I'm not that picky on peanut butter. I feel like. For a little while, I was trying to be like, oh, organic, you know, yeah. cool, you know. No, not anymore. I just, <laughs> the 99 cent peanut butter, and I like the triple jelly or triple berry blends that mm. tickles your taste buds. I love it. I love it. The closest I get to that would be that I pretty much religiously have a sliced apple with peanut butter like every oh, single day. Yeah, that's good. buddy. <laughs> that's good. That's good living right there. Yeah. I mean, that's a good tailgate snack. You know, I don't I don't usually when I when I'm in the field and I'm packing like tailgate lunches and stuff, I usually throw an apple in, but I don't go I I usually don't have the peanut butter even though it would be easy to do so, but a uh, big peanut butter fan here as well. So, Lone Duck and Birdshot podcast have that in common. I love it. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. All right. So, okay, so so you've got all these sort of components and it sounds like it started in the kind of the t-shirts and hats as you mentioned, but obviously you don't just sort of whether you stumble into training dogs, you don't just stick with it. 
you know, for something to do. It's a commitment. It's a, it's a passion. Would you say that like kind of working with the dogs is sort of the thing that, that sort of really elevated it and is kind of the core of what you do now? Yeah, absolutely. When I was growing up, I mean, like five, six, seven years old, I would draw pictures of police dogs, of hunting dogs, of, you know, you name it, border collies and sheep. And I all, I would write like, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a police officer and be a canine guy. I want to be a cowboy and have a cattle dog. I want to be a hunting guy. And so ever since I can remember, I've had a passion for animals. And then the story goes that we finally, my parents quit lying about having allergies and bought me a chocolate lab. <laughs> and his name was Nelson. And he was the greatest and most naughty dog any dog, any person has ever seen. And so he would drag me around the yard. He would knock us over and steal our winter hats. He would, he just jump on the countertops. Doesn't come when he's called. He'd run away and jump in the pond half a mile away. So one day I, I told my dad, like the next dog I get, and I was probably 12, the next dog I get, I'm going to teach it to be off leash and hang out with me. Mm. And that, that just stuck with me. So through high school and college, I got more into hunting, but no dog. And I read every book, watched every DVD that I could get my hands on. And then when the company formed with the t-shirts and hats and I had my first hunting dog, his name was Buck, I started traveling up and down the East Coast, selling my gear at our hunt test competitions. And I would sleep on a professional dog trainer's couch or spare bedroom and learn from them all week and sell gear on the weekends. And then I'd travel home and sell copiers or oil or auto supplies or insurance and whatever. But those are like my week vacations. I'd go and sell and train with people. That's wild. So Nelson was, he was a chocolate lab, but not a gun dog. Not at all. I mean, not at all. (laughs) He loved (laughs) sticks. He loved to swim. He probably would have been great at it if, if we knew what we were doing back then, but he was just a good old boy, man. He was the best. Was there a hunt? Was there a hunting component to your upbringing? And you mentioned like getting into that in college, but was that was that not something you started doing at a younger age, even? So that's a great question. So my dad grew up hunting and trapping. Okay, loved being outdoors in New York. And there, in yep, in New York. And when he went to college, he did college out in Wyoming, and then moved home, and he became a police officer. And had kids right away. I mean, him and my mom got married and nine months from the honeymoon, my sister was born. So he had to work a lot and work a lot of overtime. And so hunting became something he didn't want to do anymore for two reasons. One, he wanted to spend family time instead of being away at deer camp or whatever. And then two, he had seen a lot of bad things and he didn't want to take an animal's life anymore. So we grew up shooting. I mean, I think I was shooting 22s at four years old, plinking balloons and milk jugs with water in them. And so we were around guns. We were a lot, very outdoorsy, but we didn't, he didn't take us hunting. Okay. Do you have any like memories of, you know, what drew you to birds? You know, I know you're a waterfowl hunter and obviously you do upland hunting now. Was, was waterfowl the first thing that, that you found? Yeah, it was. When I was high school, college time frame, there was a TV show called Ducks Unlimited's Water Dog TV. Mm. And it was exactly what pushed me to get a yellow lab for my first duck dog. What 
like I already had a passion for watching ducks and shooting ducks. And then this guy and his dog traveled all over the country. And it wasn't the type of hunting shows that are on TV now. It was about the guy and his dog and the bond they had. And it was really centered around that. And then hunting with his buddies and their dogs and their stories. Instead of just a camera pointed to the sky watching a duck fall out of the sky. Sure, sure. It was about the dog making the retrieve and chasing a crippled bird and everybody hooting and hollering when the dog finally gets it. And like they, they go back and reminisce on that memorable retrieve. And, and that's where I come, came up with the term for lone duck, the unspoken bond. It may, it's got a feeling, mm, uh, yeah. the relationship we have with our hunting dog and the memories we make in the field and the people that join us on these trips to hunt with our dog. And there's nothing better than like you taking a person out with you and they're like, damn, dude, your dog is awesome. Thanks. The unspoken bond. Yeah. Yeah. That makes you feel good. Matt, as you can imagine, I I have definitely strong memories of a few TV shows. Obviously the world has changed completely. You know, the options were way less back when you and I were younger. Not that, not that we're the oldest people around bird dogs or hunting or anything like that, but it has changed dramatically, obviously in the last 10, 20 years, whatever. There's VHS tapes that, you know, I would watch over and over again. It's like, it's almost hard to believe that I could find like a grouse hunting VHS tape. And there was like, you know, I could count them on one hand. There was like one or two of them, but I definitely had them. And that's, that's what you had to turn to, you know? Absolutely. We lived vicariously <laughs> through these people and and I just thought, boy, what a what a life they live, you know, to go and travel around and duck hunt with their dog. Yeah. This is awesome. How right. do I do this? Right. Yep. So so we kind of touched on like how you kind of got into dogs and dog training, but what was the point where you kind of thought like, hey, this this is kind of for me. Like I'm I'm getting it. I'm enjoying working with these dogs. I think I could do this. Was there a specific point that you could or transition that you would point to or was it just very gradual? It was probably gradual, but I do get, you know, folks that'll ask like, well, how do I become a dog trainer? One, I say like you're not going to make a lot of money in the beginning and you're not really going to make a whole heck of a lot of money anytime it's it's like being a farmer you you're working all the time you know until you have a business big enough where you can have employees mm. you know you're you're hustling 24 7 i would say i got tired of being a salesman i sold i literally sold copiers out of college in my first paycheck i bought buck <laughs> <laughs> that sucked copier sales was not great <laughs> I, sold, I wonder how big how big that industry still is <laughs> I don't really know. I mean, I sold for Xerox, so it was like the big one. But man, I got, I remember one time, I'll digress for one second, but I walked into this little podunk office and there was like an 80 year old office manager sitting at the front desk. And she looked at me and just goes, no, get out. I don't, I I can't take another salesman today. I'm like, dang, (laughs) dang. Just a lot of, a lot of no's. Yeah. Yeah. And then I sold insurance Mm. and insurance, you're you're meeting with, business. So it was like general liability and workers comp and stuff like that. But I would meet with these business owners and I always held business owners and entrepreneurs on this level of like, man, they got to be super smart and, you know, have their act together and know where they're going in life. And I was probably 24 and I had none of that. And then you sit down and chat with them and a couple of them really mentored me in like, nah, dude, I was normal too. I am normal. 
you just yeah. have a passion and you go for it. And so that's where it came from. Fast forward, I did get an opportunity where like, yes, I'm getting better at training dogs. My brand had grown in the South pretty significantly. And I just took a chance. I just took a chance. I quit my job and went and made, you know, two grand a month training dogs. Yeah. And I wouldn't uh, change it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still, I can't get the, uh, the scene from office space out of my head mentioning <laughs> that, that had uh, to have been a little running joke within you and your, your boys maybe. Oh I'm just, man. I'm just you, guessing you, the timing on that. <laughs> my boss at the copier job, if you could imagine, close your eyes and imagine Michael Scott from the office mixed <laughs> with macho man, Randy Savage. And put and put it in a five foot four round fella. He'd be like, "Hey, brother, who you gonna go pound that pavement, brother? Let's go get them copiers sold. Oh yeah, let's get them." Like, oh god, yeah, that's a will very, do. Very descriptive uh, Venn diagram of a former boss. Yeah. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, me too. I wonder where he's at in life right now. Man, it's funny you mentioned that. Obviously, it's sort of off topic a little bit, but. The more you, I guess, the older I get, you kind of realize, you have those realizations, like you put people on a pedestal when you're younger, you naturally just put people that are older than you on a pedestal, be they an entrepreneur or a business owner or whatever. But then life goes by and you get, you reach a certain point or you have an interact and you just have that realization like, no, actually it's just, there wasn't this big gap between me and that person. It's just, they're a normal person that made these choices and put themselves in that position, whether it's good or bad. But you just kind of come to those realizations and I don't know, it's always kind of it's eye-opening a bit, I guess, when you when you do realize that and realize like how your vision was sort of clouded because you you sort of put them on a pedestal. Does that make any sense? Absolutely. You remember that people put the, their pants on one leg at a time just like right, you do. Right, right. And yeah. if you work hard and you are good at I mean, you got to be good at it too. Yep, yep. Uh, you know, hard work doesn't always work out if you're not very good at what you're working hard at. So, yeah, but I think hard work ethic, being a good human being and caring and doing the right thing is always the right thing. And, and being a little bit of talent and you'll, you'll make it. It's almost impossible to fail. And it's also impossible to fail if you never quit. That's the other thing. Right. Motivational speaker here. What that has to do with gun dogs. I'm not quite sure, but I find it, I find it interesting. And yeah. So, so, all right, gun dogs. Now that is a like you. So you're a dog trainer, right? That's a term yep. that gets thrown around a little bit. It's quite vague. But what what does the training that you do focus on? What does that consist of? Like, what are the things that you're working on? If you have like a really common thing that you're doing for folks, or is it just a is it a really wide ranging set of training foundations that you're you're doing for clients? Like, what does it look like for you? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically, we will ask the client, what are your goals for this dog? And if the answer is, I want a weekend warrior duck dog that can go pheasant hunting with me and is enjoyable to have around the house 90% of the year, and then that 10%, I get to go hunt. That's that's a big piece of our business and has been for a long time. Okay. The other goals would be, I want my dog to run blind retrieves. You know, stopping on a whistle, changing direction. So that's a little more advanced. And then the ones that I tend to lean more towards now as my business and life has grown is the competitions. 
So people say, I want to have a master hunter or I want to run field trials. And so that's a longer term commitment from those owners and dogs. But in the end result is like a badass, like absolute badass. Yeah. So we will take dogs in at six months old and we'll go through formal obedience and collar conditioning and force fetch and we'll steady them up. We'll introduce gunfire. We'll introduce live birds, dead birds, boats, decoys, blinds, you name it. Teach them how to quarter a field and hunt close to the gun. Put them in canoes, like just do the whole shooting match so that if these people want to go and hunt geese in a layout blind, that dog will be ready for it. If they want to hunt in a boat, with a huge spread of decoys, they can do it. And that so that's a four-month program for that basic gun dog. Steady, simple doubles, long, good singles, live birds, like a really nice dog in, that anyone would enjoy. And then the advanced work, it's just advanced. You know, they're doing multiple marks and working with another dog simultaneously and the blind retrieves and, and then competitions is just fun. Hunting season's short. If we can run hunt tests during the spring and summer, it makes your hunting season seem a lot longer. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, I mean, if I had to guess, I, I would say that, or I would imagine that many of the listeners in, uh, of this show would kind of put themselves in that first category that you mentioned, you know, to have a, have a dog that you're going to, you're going to hunt with, but most of the year it's a, it's a family dog that we're doing stuff with and we're, it's a working dog, but we're maybe not doing the trials and competitions so like kind of leaning into that group a little bit like i mean do they all start kind of at the same spot foundations fundamentals is that like does every dog no matter how far down the line it's going to go do we all kind of start in the same spot or or are the things that diverge real early on in your in your mind say it sort of depends on how much the owner did before i get the dog okay yeah sure so some dogs had never swam before they get to me other dogs are great at it and love it. Some owners haven't thrown them a bumper or a duck, so they have very little retrieve drive, and we've got to unlock it. But typically, it's it's like building a house. If you don't have a strong foundation, mm. you know you're not putting the roof on. So even if the owner did a bunch of work before I get it, we still take the dog backwards, make sure that foundation is tight and strong, and then do building blocks upon that to make sure that everything is understood. Everything is fair. Everything is fun. And we continue to build week after week after week. And usually that fourth month is like icing on the cake. We're challenging the dog, putting them in situations that is you're going to see in real life hunting, like ducks splashing five feet in front of your face type of deal. What about what about differentiating between somebody that is primarily an upland hunter, like somebody that might be listening to this show versus yeah. somebody that's, you know, all duck hunting, waterfowl. Is there, are, are we kind of starting from the same place or is there a divergence there as well? That's a very good question. I would say, hmm. I, so let's just, let, let's talk flushing dogs first. Yeah. So if you've got a cocker, a boykin, a lab, a golden, a chesapeake, whatever you want to use as your flushing dog for grouse, pheasant, whatever. I may do a little less obedience, get that dog having fun searching out in front of me. Mm, I'm going to definitely take them into cover so that they're having a ton of fun on adventure walks in the woods where they're jumping logs and briars and thorns and thickets and digging in there and just having a good time. 
And so if you put a little bit too much obedience on them earlier on, they may stick closer by you and you want them to range out a little bit further. If you notice that they're really high drive and ranging too far, I'm going to take that dog and reel them in a little bit and uh, uh, apply a little more obedience and, and control on the dog at that point. But I would still say the foundation is the same. I mean, I like collar conditioning a dog. I like force fetching a dog. Um, although with that being said, the next setter I get, I probably won't force fetch it. I'll mm. probably do it a little bit different, but that's a side note. But the point is, once you get them doing what you want, quartering a field, quartering the woods, working close, working with you, working with the gun, then I want to teach the same fundamentals. Go when sent, come when called, yeah. retrieve my bird, hunt intelligently, hunt with me, not just for yourself, be good with gunfire. I mean, if I could, you know, if I could change the world, it probably wouldn't be ending world hunger. It'd be stopping people from make, you know, getting their dog gun shy. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's so easy to do. And if you just take a second and look up YouTube stuff, it, it's so easy and, and the dog will have fun doing it and it'll correlate the gunfire with awesomeness, not fear. Yeah. Do you see, do you see that quite a bit still gun shyness? It blows my mind. Yeah. It blows my mind. And it, it, you know, I hate to say like it's ignorance, but they just, maybe that's how they learned how to do it. But mm-hmm. you know, the dog's eating from a food bowl and they shoot a gun next to them. It's like, just cause it's eating doesn't mean it's in drive. Right. You want right. them to be doing, and the gun has to be far away so that it just sounds like a little pop. And then you bring it in a little closer and a little closer, and then all of a sudden your dog is putting two and two together that that gun equals the thing it loves the most, retrieving. Yeah, yeah I think sometimes being, I don't know, maybe doing this podcast, I, I tend to, it's almost like a self-biasing thing where if I'm talking to somebody, I'm probably talking to somebody that is kind of like taking an above average, you know, you're in a, you're in, on a little different standpoint because you're like a professional in your, in your training dogs. But like, even if I'm just talking to a random guest that is just an upland hunter, if I'm interviewing them, they're probably somebody that's like doing an above average amount of research and looking into, you know, you kind of like, there's, there's many people that are just, they're sort of like, you know, I don't even know if weekend warrior is the right term, but like you, you have a gun dog and you kind of just much more casual about it than maybe some of the people we talk to on this show or you read in magazines, you know, it's like, that's like an extra step, the people doing that. So, because once, like you're saying, once you kind of understand that the proper way to do it, it sounds very simple and logical, but I guess if I'm being honest, I could, I could easily see somebody just, you know, if they have their gun dog and they're, they're doing what their old uncle Bill told them to do with the dog, you know, I'm sure that still happens, you know? hundred percent, man. And, and I, I hate it for the dog because right. it's, it doesn't come, no dog comes out of the womb gun shy, not a single one. They may be more sensitive to louder noises. Sure. They may be more sensitive to, you know, corrections or the briars, like they're just a more sensitive animal. But if you can figure out what makes that dog tick and carefully and at distances add gunfire, it's just, it's foolproof. And so yeah. I, literally my goal in life is to just be able to exp- that and, and provide that information with people so that I don't, I just don't want to hear about it anymore. It's, it's, yeah. you know, I want them to all have a great dog and you can't, I always say you can't have a gun dog if they're afraid of guns. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty simple. 
Well, if anybody if anybody is questioning how to how to intro a dog to guns, I would I would encourage them to, as you said, Google it, YouTube it, or <laughs> yeah. just get in touch with Bob because he. Yeah, that's uh, right. It's it's his mission to help. I would, yeah. I guess you know I'm thankful that I had. I mean, it certainly wasn't my own doing, but I had the right friends slash mentors that kind of helped me through it the first time. And again, it's pretty simple. Now I also have only quote unquote trained two dogs. So it's like I've, my sample size is small. Like there's probably roadblocks and stuff that people can run into that just by, if you only train a dog or two, you might, you're not going to see all of the issues that could potentially arise. How do you, what, what, what things do kind of, what are the common stumbling blocks that you, whether it's gun related to gun shyness or not, but like, what are the, what are the real common stumbling blocks that you either see people hitting or they're coming to you to help have you help them fix it? Sure. Yeah. That's a good gunfire would be one introduction to water Mm. is, is relatively common. And it's the same kind of thing, as you said, as the way old uncle bill did it, right? Throw him off the dock and said, that's (laughs) right. Toss him in the pool, toss him in the water. Put him on and like I had a dude tell me he Poor paddled Uncle out Bill in a canoe. Just dragging him through the mud right now. The kicker is I have an Uncle Bill and he's the nicest man <laughs> in the it. world. Yeah. So, but they would paddle in a canoe, place the puppy on an island, and paddle back across the oh, pond gosh. and make the dog swim back. You know, just ridiculous things. So, you know, that would be one: how to introduce a puppy to water properly so that it again thinks water is the greatest thing ever and it it has no fear about it. Birds, introduction to birds. And I also think that people are afraid to act like an idiot mm-hmm. to get their puppy enthusiastic. You know, I probably sound like a four-year-old schoolboy when I'm playing with puppies and young dogs coming into training with a high-pitched voice, very erratic and fun and vibrant movements, getting them to chase and tease and chase and tease and then toss the bumper or then toss the bird. And you just get them fired up. They can't help themselves but to go and get it and grab it because you've coached them and cheerleaded them into greatness. And then all of a sudden a light bulb goes off and boom, water's great. Boom, ducks are great. Boom, pigeons are great. Boom, gunfire's great. What are some other common ones that, you know, other ones, dogs just like won't pick up a bird. Mm. And, And it, I would say real quick that is because most people don't save birds through the season before they get a dog. So they don't have the ability to pull one out of the freezer. Like I have three chest freezers full of ducks. I get it. It's my job, but other people don't. And so their dog has eight months of training with nine months of training with bumpers. And then it gets, it sees a duck and it's like, no, thank you. Where's my plastic? Or like for a bird dog, unless you live in an area, maybe like you do, Nick, where we can run dogs on wild birds, you know, during certain times of the year. If you don't have any pigeons, it's kind of hard. And not everybody lives on a farm to, like, I've got 25 homing pigeons. Yeah. And I love them. But if if you don't have that kind of thing, it's kind of hard to train a pointing dog without wild birds and pigeons. Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. I think I do not have pigeons and, and, Mainly because I live in the city, I think if I if I lived on a property where, you know, whether it was five acres, ten acres, you just just had enough to be able to you know set up my stuff on my own terms and my own time, I probably would because I can see I have seen the value in it. But to your point, I am 
fortunate enough to be able to get my dogs on enough wild birds that I guess we've we're we're at a level that I'm satisfied with. Yeah. Certainly not everybody not everybody has that opportunity. Yeah. I mean in New York State I have to hunt hard to find grouse. Yeah. And you know, you also don't want to take your puppy to those covers outside of the season and start busting birds all over the place. Like right. they need to nest. They need to have that. I feel like we don't have populations that are large enough to just go and monkey with outside of the season. Yeah. I want to see them in the fall. I don't need to see them in April. Right. Yep. You know, I think it's funny. I, I wasn't sort of intending to, to do a deep dive on dog training or anything, but the other thing that, that I think was a, was a struggle point for me that I think imagine others would have the same is when you haven't done it before, just not recognizing like how small progress and what what that can look like where i i think i had these images in my head would say we'll say a dog staunchly standing and pointing as the rough grouse flies away like that's Mm -hmm. my uneducated idea of like what the bird dog is supposed to do but and not being able to recognize and identify the small little steps in that direction like a dog working a puppy working a grouse and like I, I I just missed a lot of that with, with my first dog, and I've talked about this at length, but I think that's a, that's a thing for people, whether you're doing hold and carry, where, like, even the dog sort of nosing the dowel is a, is a you know, click, or that's a success. I think recognizing those little steps is, can be a challenge for people that are new to it. Would you agree? 100% agree. I think there's two ways it can go. People have zero expectations of their dogs, therefore, mm-hmm. if they do, like, they they think their four year old dog who flash points and bumps every bird and the and and or like will go and get a bumper twenty feet away and bring it back and drop it and like grab it by the rope and throw it in the air but that's good enough for them so they got too low of expectations for what a dog can actually grasp and learn and become yeah. or they have ridiculously high expectations and they're expecting a four or five month old puppy to do things that. I don't expect a year and a half old puppy to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, I look at it like, enjoy the ride. You got this dog to be your family pet and hunting companion, the unspoken bond. Enjoy the ride, be patient, have fun, make memories, get out in the field. And as long as, you know, each week, each month, you're developing this animal into what you want as a family pet and hunting companion, that's awesome. Yeah. Yep, I think that's a that's a good approach and good advice, which means a lot more to me now than it would have, say, ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, same here, dude. I was yep. very I don't know about you, but I was very impatient and would have been like my second person, right? Like I had yep. way too high expectations for my first dog, Buck. Yep. And I would be so frustrated with him during training or on hunts where, you know, he's just being a dog. He made a mistake. Like or like he's trying hard. He just didn't click today. One bad training session doesn't mean you got a bad dog. And that takes maturity and, and doing it to learn. Yep. That was, that was very much me. I I wouldn't say I wasn't, I don't know that frustration was ever, certainly I got frustrated. I mean, we all do, but it was when I look back, like I, and I don't want to say like I super regret it. I just acknowledge it and realize it now. Like there was a lot of little wins that my first dog Hartley had that I just, I didn't recognize as wins because I didn't have the perspective to do so. That's just, that's part of the process, you know? 
Exactly. And yeah, yeah. I bet you enjoyed it a lot more because you slowed down to look to enjoy it with your second dog. 100%. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And it, it just, it, it put a lot into perspective with how I sort of view both my dogs. And I consider myself lucky to have two really good ones. And, you know, they'll be, they're the, they're the first two of hopefully a, hopefully a bunch more. And we're having a good time doing it. So that's for sure. Yeah. Do you have any hopes of getting another one or will you wait and just be a two dog house? I'm, I'm trying to like, if I, if I had a strategy, which I do, I think about it often, Hartley is nine now. So, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm, I guess I'm preparing in a way for, for that next step. And I, I would say that I'm trying to, to, you know, I got like my local, one of my local grouse hunting buddy mentor, he's like, you need another dog now. You know, you need, you need a, you need one who's kind of just hitting your prime. You need the old dog and you need the young one. And I am trying to minimize the time that I have three dogs, but with its, it's, you know, you can't predict this stuff and, and it's just, I don't know, I guess I'm going through it and I'm learning. I I'm certainly planning for and preparing for the next dog. It will be another English setter. I can tell you that. Yeah. It's the wheels are, the wheels are somewhat in motion, but cool. I don't, I don't know. I've never, I haven't had to, to make that decision yet. So. Well, I'm yeah. maybe maybe stalling and delaying a little bit. I don't know. I get it. Gearing up for your next hunt? Check out Ugly Dog Hunting Company for all your dog supply needs. Ugly Dog Hunting carries a full line of products for your bird dog and even some for you. Whether you're looking for dog collars, GPS tracking devices, kennels, beds, leads, training equipment, or first aid supplies, Ugly Dog Hunting carries it and a whole lot more. New owner of the company and Fred of the Bird Shop podcast, Mike Nadusky, loves to remind me that while I do hunt with pretty dogs, every dog can be an ugly dog. Check out the entire selection of gear for you and your bird dog at UglyDogHunting.com. For many upland hunters, along with their passion for dogs, birds, and the places we chase them, comes a passion for shotguns. Upland Gun Company specializes in customizing shotguns for the upland bird hunter imported from Italy and shipped direct to an FFL near you. Select from one of their side-by-side or over-under shotgun platforms and customize the fit, function, and aesthetics to your liking. Design and build your next upland hunting shotgun with Upland Gun Company today. Visit uplandguncompany.com. I'm in, so I'm in that process too. We I texted you actually for everyone listening. I texted him asking where he got his dogs and yep. so I have a six and a half or seven year old English setter. Her name is Andy with an I. And this year we went to Maine for a grouse trip and she came up a little bit limp. And I was like, well, like could end my entire grouse season and I have nothing else to back her up. And so it's kind of a realization of I I do want to start developing another dog. I'm scared to because she's so fun and good and goofy and happy and great at her job that I'm afraid that if I get another one, it won't hold a candle to her. And obviously this is coming from a retriever, like trainer. I do this for a living that obviously it'll be good. But yeah, and I don't mean that that came out arrogant. I just mean like I'm sure it'll be a good dog, but I just love her so much that I, I struggle with taking another dog to the grouse woods. Yeah. If that makes sense. It didn't, I did that came out weird, but. Yeah, no, I, I, I follow you. I know what you're saying. What the, I was going to ask you. So would you wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Like, how did you get, how did you end up with the setter? <laughs> it's, oh, it's another great question. <laughs> so remember I told you about my dad hunting when he was younger? Yeah. So his, his dad, my grandpa worked all the time. 
And so my grandpa's best friend, his name was E.B. Hendrick. Mr. Hendricks took my dad grouse hunting and mentored my dad in the woods, partridge hunting, right? Yeah. So he called him Gosh, partridge. That sounds like it sounds like a a character from like a Corey Ford Road to Tinkham Town story. E. B. Hendrick. It's just perfect. <laughs> yeah. And so E. B. started a field trial English pointer club in my hometown. He was a horseback field trialer and avid, avid grouse hunter. And when they moved to Florida, I'm now of the age of like having memories. So five, six, eight years old. We'd go and visit E.B. once a year. I'd sit on the ground and he had pictures of English pointers, you know, flushing quail in the south and grouse flushing over here. And he would tell me stories because I'm the kid who loves dogs. Everybody else didn't give a crap. But E.B.'s sitting, you know, 80 something years old telling me grouse hunting stories. And so fast forward, I'm if I'm 30, so I'm probably at 30 years old. And I'm like, wow, what the heck? One more dog. What, you know, I want to get a grouse dog. I've trained a bunch of pointers at this point and enjoy them and love grouse hunting. So it's time. So I call this dude in New York. His name is Styles Bridges. Yeah. yeah, Okay. I remember that now. Yep. So I'm talking to Styles. And so Andy is from like the Grouse Ridge lines. Okay. Styles has setters with Grouse Ridge lines. And so I'm like, you know, where are you from? He goes, oh, where are you from, Bobby? I'm from Syracuse, New York. Oh, I used to run field trials down there all the time. Would you happen to know E.B. Hendrick? And he goes, you're kidding me. And now Styles is probably 75. And he goes, when E.B. moved to Florida, I got all his horse tack gear. I got all his bird launchers. I bought stuff. Like He bought all of E.B.'s stuff and took it to his farm. And he's like, he was a great guy. I field trialed with him all the time. And so I was like, screw it. I'm driving up. When can I come? And I'm buying a dog from you. And it was just like the stars aligned that yeah. it was meant to be. And I went and bought Andy. So six, six and a half, seven years in now, Andy's been, you and Andy have been chasing grouse and birds and other things, I imagine. What what were you at with with Andy, the, the setter? I love her to death. Yeah. She is... <laughs> She's quirky. I kind of kid around with people that she looks like the the hyena at, in Lion King with the tongue hanging out. She's just <laughs> got a goofy personality and happy-go-lucky. But when we hit the woods, she's like spinning in circles, put that collar on me, and we're rolling. She works relatively close, can sometimes range out a little further than I'd like, but it, it's not obnoxious. Yeah, Absolutely slams points and holds them. And has figured them out. And I would say I can pinpoint the day in the grouse woods where she became a true grouse dog. Mm. It was just me and her on one of my favorite covers. And it's a very small piece of cover. And I think we had 12 or 14 flushes in a two-acre cover. Wow. Yeah, yeah. They were piled in there. Piled in there. Light snow underneath baby pine trees. And... It was like the first one she bumped, second one she bumped, third one she rocked, and it was like, holy cow, it clicked. And we just, dogs learn through repetition. They learn th- through positive experiences and like light bulb moments where it's like, this is what I was made for. This is the yep. distance I should be pointing these things. I can't keep creeping in. I can't blow by them at Mach 12, you know, and she really has become a slithering snake through the woods, very mm-hmm. quiet up and over logs, underneath logs, in and around places grouse like to be, and is methodical. 
And so I've, I've killed a lot of grouse over her. And that's why I'm saying like, if I got another Saturn, it bombs the woods and like is making a ruckus and, you know, field trial lines running 400 yards away from me, it'll be up for sale. So don't buy it from me. Yeah. She's very special. She's steady to wing shot. And, you know, when the fall happens, she's either going and finding it again or off and hunting, which the next uh, setter, I would love to build a little more retrieve into them. So does um, she retrieve at all or no? Typically she grabs them right by the fan. Oh, okay. <laughs> She's that <laughs> yeah, dog. Perfect. She's perfect. like, oh, let me take the thing he likes the most. <laughs> the, the Lion <laughs> King hyena persona is, is sort of filling out now. <laughs> Dude, absolutely. She, and then she'll just look at you with a mouthful of tail feathers fan. Like, you go, oh, like, what? he's right here. <laughs> yeah, he's right here, bud. <laughs> so she's great though. She's about 35, maybe 40 pounds, you know, sits on okay. your front seat and just can chill. She's a great yeah. little dog. Yeah. That's a, about the si- same size as Rose. So, you know, like when it comes to, I'm curious, like when it comes to range, you know, a lot of people like to throw numbers on it cause that's an easy thing to do, but it sounds like she, she can run, but she's not way out there. Like how would you describe it beyond what you already have? When she's being a good dog. Maybe the maybe to, the better question is like where do you you know it, it, where do you like your grouse dogs range to be you know yeah that's a good question I don't always have to see her right and there yep. there's definitely covers we have that you don't see them early season I go back and forth on whether I like using a bell do you use a bell I do run a bell yes so I don't know if this holds any water. You know, and this this would be a great like people leaving in your comment section on your podcast that Bob's full of crap. But <laughs> I feel like early in the season, grouse are being grouse and a dog's being a dog and the bell is just being a bell. But I do feel like at least where I am, there's not a ton of birds. So people start to know where birds are mm. and they get pressured, right? And so if everybody's going to the grouse woods with a bell on and the grouse start getting accustomed to someone shooting at them when they hear a bell, I'm imagining that they're starting to run a little bit more. They're starting to flush out of range. And so after a a month or so of using the bell, I'll take the bell off and just use the GPS. The negative of the GPS, I feel like I will lean on it more and be like, huh, I wonder where she is. Oh, she's only 60 yards over there. Well, put it in my pocket and just enjoy the walk and listen and use my ears for her snapping a twig or rustling in the leaves. Like, so that's where I'm at. But as far as range goes, I do love watching her work the woods. So anywhere between 30 and 75 yards is kind of a great place to be. 75 yards to get to her on a point can be challenging and have that bird still be there. Then there are times we went to Michigan and she was a solid 500 yards away, just lost. Lost. (laughs) That's way out there. (laughs) Way out there, dude. But we we're the problem was we were hunting in a group of four dudes, which I don't like to do. Yeah. Two other dogs, which I don't like to do. Yeah. And I'm trying to be like in the group and you you turn around, you're like, shoot, where is she? Pull up the GPS. Oh, 120 yards behind us. Like, okay, you whistle, all of a sudden 120, 130, 150, 180. You're like, oh. I love hunting with one other person and their dog, or just me and her. I can follow her. I can listen, I can move at my pace, I can take my time. Yeah, I I would share a lot of that. I don't know that there's anything more enjoyable than just me and like one of my dogs 
and just again because then like all my attention can be on that dog mm-hmm. and the woods and then I can wander and go you know wherever we want to go like that there's something very very freeing about that now you give a little bit of that up obviously to hunt with friends and see their dogs and and there's a there's a good balance of all that stuff but as you're yeah. describing like you can you can get a little too crowded and a little too chaotic in the grouse woods pretty quickly simply because it's just hard to keep track of people you know it's not like sharp tail hunting or something where you can just kind of glance over your shoulder and see your buddy on the far ridge over there like there's safety considerations like you got to kind of keep people together and know where they are and that takes your focus away from the dog and the birds in the woods. So it's just kind of an inverse yeah. relationship. I have one friend that I hunt with. His name is Nick. I trained his dog. He's a German short-haired pointer. We did the nab to deal with him. So he's he's staunch. He's I th- He got a prize one in utility. Like he's a real solid animal. And Nick and I have hunted grouse now for seven years together. Yeah. Actually, probably longer than that, but... We communicate well in the woods. Our dogs work together well in the woods. We don't even have to communicate. It can just be the little whistle, and it's like, yep, he's over there, okay. And we just have a way of moving through the woods that's very similar and, like, non-spoken, so you can just be quiet and still enjoy your deal. And, man, that everybody else I take grouse on, it's like a little bit of a chore. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when you when you find that person that your, your styles mesh well together and – and your dogs and everything that's a that's a rarity and it's it's one that you'd naturally appreciate for sure for sure dude yeah for sure i would i would i would agree well like say the same thing like when it comes to range you know rose if my if my pointing dogs like never went beyond 100 yards like i don't think i'd be disappointed like i feel like i could i i feel like we could be in good enough cover and around enough birds to have very good quality hunting with that kind. Now Rose will definitely go beyond a hundred yards and she does that often and and frequently, but I don't really have any issues with it just because she she covers ground pretty quickly. But the one thing that I always come back to, and I think this is a big component of or it, it almost can kind of make range irrelevant, is like how connected to you is your dog? How much are they checking in? How much are they hunting for the gun? And I would say that both my dogs are really hunting for me and with me. So, like, I don't think a whole lot about range other than I do see the numbers flash across the GPS screen. So I have sure. I have an idea of what that is, you know. Sure. Yeah, I would say Andy is a little more independent. Okay. You know, she does correlate me with good stuff. But if she's on a track or if she's, like, if she's got it in her head that she wants to go over here, She's probably not going, oh, I wonder where Bob is. Like, <laughs> she's just like, and that's one thing I do like about the bell is I do feel like when I she has the bell on, she'll stop and listen for me. And if I yep. hear the bell stop, I'll whistle, just like a light yep. Sweetie Bird yep. whistle. And if she keeps moving, she was checking in. Where is he? Okay, Correct. he's not too far. He's over there and she'll scan back towards me. Without the bell and just a GPS, I can't always hear when she stops and tries to listen right, for me. And then right. I can get a little more range out of her and she'll be like, huh, he's, I'll just keep over here. So I do like the bell for that reason. And I don't know, but I would like a dog that is a little more in tune with me. Like you say, yours are, that would be great. Yeah. 
It's a good point because I always hunt with the bill for multiple reasons. Number of them you've already hit on, and I do the exact same thing. Like if I hear my dog's bell stop, and depending on what my knowledge of their previous movements were, I'm probably going to do that same thing. Give a little whistle or say "yip" or something like that, and. They, if you immediately hear the bell start moving again, you know they were checking in on you. Or if the bell mm-hmm. doesn't start moving again, then your heart rate like, quickens Ooh. and you start getting going in that <laughs> like, direction, Ooh. which is yeah, fun. Baby. You know? Yeah. That's the yeah. best part. The bell yeah. stops and then there's nothing. You're like, oh, let's go. Yep. Man, oh, it's so, God. it's such a subtle, nuanced thing. But I mean, that's, I mean, that's just, that's the fun of bird dogs. Like they're so smart in that way. And you learn yeah. these, these little, the, that little working relationship. I mean, that's, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, um, I love it. So I, the listeners will know I've kind of become fascinated with this whole like dogs, pointing dogs specifically, I guess, because that's my experience. But like relocating, oftentimes for me, that's on rough grouse. Relocating, fine, you know, Kyle Warren and I went back and forth on what relocating versus not really tracking, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. Sounds like Andy has kind of that tracking-like ability, relocating. You said snake-like, stealthy, methodical. So I'm sort of envisioning her following up on grouse in in a way that my younger setter, Rose, does. Is that accurate or not? I'm going to give her an 80-20. Okay. I, I would agree with you, and that's why I and I would say that it also happens when she gets the uh, willies out after 20 minutes, you know? That that first yeah. put her on the ground and she's jacked. And especially if we have another dog, that competition, she'll yeah. run with her head up a little more and a little bit quicker pace. But once she kind of just is like, ah, we're here, and she she settles in, it's it's never a full sprint. It's very much move, just like a gait, like a you know a, a horse is galloping. Mm-hmm. That's too mm-hmm. fast. It's just like a good speed that she can maintain all day long. That's the other reason I like it. There's been a few dogs I've hunted with that after 30 minutes, they've completely blown their, you know, energy. Yeah. And now they're gassed. That's not her. She keeps it at an even pace that she can maintain without tongue hanging out and and mouth breathing too much. So yeah, I would I would I would classify her as what Kyle was saying, you know, more of a tracking style, but I, I don't think her nose is, I would say her nose is not on the ground, you know, yeah, yeah. walking at all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So if you do end up with another setter, is there- There's not an, an if, buddy. It's no, okay. a win. All right. So when, <laughs> when you get yeah. that, that next setter, is there anything you got to do differently? Things that, things that you thought you did really well this time or things that you know, definitely I'm going to do differently the next time, anything like that? that you've learned from having Andy? That's a great question. I would say that Andy, so I bought her, she was six months old Mm. and this I will get at eight weeks. So I'm going to develop it like a Labrador. Okay. I want it to swim. I want it to retrieve for me. I want it to work a little bit more with me like a team. And I feel like, like any dog I trained as a pointing dog for people taught them like a Labrador. They sat next to me and got marked retrieves like a Labrador. I mean, I have German short hairs that can do 150, 200 yard marks. And I think that really helps them when we knock a bird down, they catch a glimpse of where that thing flew through the trees, but they understand the concept of the arc of the bird and the fall area of the bird and go to that fall area and put on an intelligent hunt. I did not like, 
other than shooting pigeons and chucker and stuff when she was younger, she didn't have a lot of that. Yeah. And so I would, I would take a step back and with that puppy build some retrieve drive, get it swimming and loving the water. Like if we got across a Creek and he's looking for the place she can hop, skip and jump to cross that Creek. Mm. So if we were to knock a bird down, you know, anywhere near a beaver pond or something, which is common. Yeah. It could happen. Uh, yeah. She definitely ain't getting it. And if we don't have my buddy Nick's dog, Huey, I'm, I'm going swimming. Going for a swim. <laughs> yep. So I would like them to do that. Other than that, man, I just pray that it's got a sweet personality that yeah. is great in the house and and then doesn't run so, so big. And that's my biggest fear. I don't need a field trial bred setter. And I also don't want a boot licker. Like, yeah. I, I just want that happy medium of enjoyable to walk in the woods where I'm not constantly wondering where they are. And I also know that I've become a better and more proficient grouse hunter and yeah. our covers are becoming more productive. So I feel like at a younger age, I'll be able to introduce that puppy to more successful hunts on a more consistent calendar yeah. versus like Andy's first season. She probably saw 12 grouse in, you know, 18 outings. Yeah. So then that one hunt where we got 12 in a day, boom, your light bulb went off. So. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, I definitely think, but I'm excited. I think it's going to be in the next 12 months, man. Okay, cool. Yeah, the the sort of your development as a grouse hunter, that, that's definitely a variable that I, I would not be able to account for between my two dogs, like, like Rose. I mean, I learned a lot. You know, I'd been grouse hunting for 20 years before I got my first dog, but not with right. dogs. And I just, man, that was such a, such a fork in the road for me, like, learning how to hunt with a dog, but then learning how to hunt grouse differently because I have a dog. And then you learn a lot because your dogs take you to places and find you birds. And so Rose definitely had a, she had a leg up in that regard because my sort of library of covers and my experience in them was a lot greater than, than when I took Hartley home as a pup. So I don't, I mean, I compare them both objectively, but it's not like I'm not comparing them like, oh gosh, you know, Rose is such a better dog than Harley. I just, I'm so, I'm so curious by the, like what made this happen and, and, you know, like having the perspective now, I just, I guess it's just kind of my personality. I like to do that, but. Yeah, me too. Well, it's being reflective too. So yes, the yes. third one you get will be not better is the wrong word, but you'll you'll attack it a little different it's well it should it should have even more of a head start right because if i've been if i've been doing what i'm supposed to be doing and learning i should know a whole lot more by the time i get number three so yeah exactly right you did mention you probably wouldn't force fetch the next set or anything there like sort of worth sort of outlining like what 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 you did with andy and kind of why you wouldn't do it again so i feel like so I, I'm a retriever trainer. I've yeah. force-fetched everything under the sun, and I feel like it teaches the dog. So force-fetch is the process from start to finish of hold, then teaching the dog to, on command, grab something, hang on to it nicely, gently, and deliver it to hand properly until I take it from you. You're not mouthing it. You're not grabbing the tail feather. You're not ripping it to shreds or crunching down on it, and you're delivering it nicely. Force fetch, maybe a 1,000-plus dogs. Jeez. I think, you know, when you talk about short hairs and drothars and some of the Griffons, even some of the Griffons can be 
can be soft, mm-hmm. but I've done it to, with Griffons and they, they bounce around and do it right and gain and get it. It is 100% doable, but I feel like the setters are just a, in general, a soft soul. And I did start force fetch with Andy years ago. And I do believe I'm better at force fetch, obviously, than I was years ago. But she just, it took the fun out of it. You could see her go, this effing stinks. Yeah. And it's like she had zero retrieve drive anyways. That's why I would like to develop a natural retrieve drive with a baby puppy. Yeah. And then I will do more of like a conditioned hold where... Like you, I think you said like a hold and walk or something like, yeah, hold just and carry. Yeah. Just hang on to it for me. And if they drop it, put it back in their mouth, maybe a little bump under their chin and just work them up and down the forest fetch table. And I'll feel that individual dog's personality. And if yeah. I think it can handle the quote unquote pressure, then I'll do it. Cause I know how to do it and it'll be fine. But if I think it's going to take something away from that dog being a setter and, and working with enough of them. Man, you look at them wrong, and they're like, "Uh oh, I'm I, I screwed up," and <laughs> yeah. it's like, "No, I just I just was looking over there and seeing something on the ground." So I, I think it's a great tool, and actually, you know, towards the end of the show, I'll I'll talk about it for you know a two second plug. So I think it's a great phenomenal tool, but I do believe I would say on average the setters that I've played with, worked with, trained, there's just a little piece of them that just they don't want that. They want to go point things. They want to maybe go and get them, and they want to go out and run and be be your buddy. And so I'm okay with her being like a straight-up meat dog, doesn't need to bring me stuff and deliver perfectly to hand. But my next one, I will I will groom it in a way that it will. And whether that's force fetch or not, it'll be dependent on its personality. Right, right, yeah. You'll, you'll know when to, when to stop or not or keep progressing. Yep. Correct. But like, yeah. for instance— if people who listen to your show are big NAVDA people, you have to force fetch that dog. Right. I mean, they can't drop it. You can't tell them fetch. You can't tell them hold. It has to deliver perfectly to hand. And so force fetch gets that job done and it gets it done in a timely manner. And at the end of it, the dog will come out the other end doing it great. And so I think it's a really important tool. So I, I did fail to mention about the force fetch is like, it teaches the dog how to learn. So it, it does deliver the bird to hand or bumper to hand. And that's like the end product, but it does teach the dog how to learn. It learns how to overcome uncomfortable situations. It learns how to listen and comply and, and then strive to comply quickly. And so all of a sudden, you know, you're starting to click and the light bulb moments go off and that dog goes, Oh, I just need to do this faster. I just need to do this further. And then it's, you clean up little habits like crunching birds picking it up, dropping it 25 times in 10 yards, and you just clean all that stuff up, and it gives you the tools in your tool belt. Yeah, interesting. Okay, let's wrap up with a few, not not totally wrap, I got a few things I want to run by you. Yeah. When we, when I was on your show a while back, we talked a lot about shotguns, naturally, and we talked a little bit about some of your some of your go to guns and stuff. I'm just kind of curious because I know that was that was I think that was actually shortly after you did an interview with Lars and Lars Jacob, that is wing shooter, wing shooting instructor, gun fitter. So you were kind of diving in and and thinking a lot about shotguns. So I'm just kind of curious, where are you right now? Like, what was your what gun were you carrying in the grouse woods this year? 
and what are your thoughts on on shotguns at the moment because <laughs> i know that's an evolving thing for many people myself included absolutely so i have my favorites so i have a 12 gauge browning satori that's what i thought under. yep and that is my everything gun i turkey hunt with it i duck hunt with it i goose hunt with it i've killed you know grouse with it before i had other guns i mean it was I've had it for like eight years or something, and the bluing around the barrel, you know, is off. Like, it is worn perfectly. Love that gun. My grouse gun all season this year, well, that's not that's not true. But on average, I have a primary. side-by-side. Yeah, primary grouse gun is a side-by-side Ithaca 16-gauge. It's got the three barrels set, so like a 26-inch oh, yeah. barrel, yep. a 28 and a 32 maybe or something like that yeah it's all come back to me now i remember you telling me about this that gun has killed plenty of grouse i love that gun but then this past year which brings me back to my grandpa owens he had a silver snipe a beretta silver snipe which predates the silver pigeon wow the the silver snipe that my grandpa had was a 12 gauge it got sold when he passed away and Ever since then, I've like gone to gun shows and looked at them and been like, dang, three grand, five grand. I just couldn't, I can't afford it. I found one in an estate sale for 1200 bucks. Oh. A buddy of mine actually found it and he's like, <laughs> what do you think? I'm like, 1200 buy it. I, like, it can have a barrel that looks to the left. I don't care, buy it. You know, it's what my grandpa carried when he got to go hunt. So I took that to our main grouse hunt and I believe I killed. I'm pretty sure that's the one I killed the grouse, one or two grouse with in Maine cool. with the silver snipe. So um, is that that's an over under then predating the silver it, it, pigeon? Yeah. Yep, correct. Okay. Yep. Okay. Over under twelve so, gauge. And it's a twelve gauge, yeah. Okay. And then I am dabbling in the dark arts of going and getting a twenty <laughs> gauge Satori or a twenty eight gauge Satori. Okay. There's a gun sh- gun shop in North Carolina that it's like double gun capital. You can walk in there, and there's all antique, unreal guns that are just hard to find anywhere. And I may go and treat myself, but we'll see. I mean, yeah, so you yeah. got a setter, man. You're halfway to a 28 gauge. You might as well. It's a great point, man. I got pinky <laughs> up when I drink my bush light. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> that's right. Oh, that's funny. Uh, but yeah, man. I'm. I actually, Kevin and my brother Kevin, who's not on this show, but he does the podcast with me. Everybody. Yep. We both have been just looking at your guns with Upland Gun Company and just like, oh, one of these days. Because it's to me, it's like an heirloom. Every gun I have, I do not own a synthetic gun. Everything is wood. Everything is old and used and has memories. And, you know, someday I hope to have children. And I hope that them and my grandchildren can take all these guns that I've had and built memories with and dogs I've hunted with can use these guns nobody's handing down their synthetic auto loader so we're we will be the owens brothers will be purchasing at some point but it'll be one of those guns that it fits us perfect it'll be the the wood that we choose yeah and we will enjoy making memories in the field and then we'll hand it down to the generations behind us yep well, you and anyone else that decides to stop by the Quail Village at the Seawee Show, Southeastern Wildlife Exposition. Did I get that right? I think that's right. Yeah. We'll, we'll get a chance to see them. So that'll be a, that'll be a good, 
good spot for you to see, put your eyes and hands on a on a bunch of the guns from RFM. So looking forward to that. Yeah, let me pull up my calendar real quick for the dates for people. So it's in yeah. Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah, the Quail Village is on Brittlebank Park, is what it's called. Brittlebank Park, which okay. So go ahead. Maybe you're going there anyways, but this is a big show, large show, expansive show. It's not like in a convention center. It's sort of like spread out in Charleston. Is that correct? Like, I mean, set the stage a little bit for us. Yeah. So Siwi takes over the entire city of Charleston. Man. So there's beautiful museums that open up their doors and have art galleries from all the most incredible artists across the country come here and it's wildlife art there's so where we're going to be at Brittlebank park is along the river that goes out to the ocean right in charleston so you're looking out over the river there's dock diving there's my favorite part is there's little uh beer spots where you can grab beers Mm. there's dog demos um just you've got over the over under company you've got purina you've got you know turtle box like Everybody, and, and then including yourself, tons of gun manufacturers, yep. like, you know, $400,000 shotguns, and you can go look at them. I mean, it's just, an, if you're in the Southeast and you're within a six to eight hour drive, I highly encourage you to pick out the weekend of February 17th and check it out. Your kids will love it. There's, it's family friendly, dog friendly, great food, great live music. And it is just everybody shuts Charleston down because Seaweed's happening. Yeah. And it, again, is like February 15, 16, 17, 18. So you'll be there. You'll be at the Quail Village at Brittlebank yep. Park. Yep. So Quail Forever, you guys, Onyx. Yep. It's going to be a great uh, little yeah, spot Tom, for people Tom to come Beck check out. He's in there. There's a few other few other folks in the, in yep. the little Quail Village tent. But, yep, that'll be cool. Super cool. There'll be dog training demos, which I won't be doing one, but maybe next year they'll call me up. I'll get to play in the big leagues with them. But it's it's just super cool. Family friendly, good food, good beer, good people. And, you know, you'll be there myself. And actually Ethan from Standing Stone is coming into town to yep. work with me for the weekend. And so he and I are going to make an appearance and jump in and hang out with you a little bit. And, and then we're also finalizing some other details. It'll be really fun. So... It's, uh, again, if you're within a six hour drive, book that weekend and come and see it. Awesome. Yeah. I guess, man, I knew that it was, it was a little bit different style of event. I mean, I had, I had some idea what we signed up for, but I've been so caught up just sort of in the daily to do with Upland Gun Company and trying to get prepared. Like I, I hadn't really, you just sort you got me even more excited just kind of thinking about the scene and the setting. And you did send that little video. It was kind of a teaser video from the Quill Forever folks down there. I mean, it just looks like a good time, man. Like I'm I'm excited to go down there. I'll be I'll be working the booth most of the weekend, but I know it's gonna be a blast. And actually, I'm I'm driving down there and I was gonna I gotta talk to Nick Adair, kind of check logistically, I don't know how much extra time I will have, but I think mm-hmm. Dan and I will be perhaps make a little bit of a detour after the show to chase some birds down in that part of the world, which I have never done. So needless to say, I'm excited for that too. That also means you can possibly bring a dog. Yes. Yes. And I, I haven't, if I brought a dog down there, Rose would be coming with me. I haven't thought through 
all of the like what would she do the days that I'm at the show and where would she go mm-hmm. and that sort of thing but it is on my mind so we'll see well if you're gonna hunt birds down here 100 you got to bring your dog it is like I said it's dog friendly so maybe yep. put her underneath you know the tent with you in a crate I mean people would love to meet her it's just yeah that's true you can't beat it dude especially you just can't hunt without your dog <laughs> I know I know <laughs> Well, all right. I will. I will. I will take that recommendation from Bob, and and I'll run that through the decision making process. I gotta. Heck yeah. I gotta dude. figure it out. Heck yeah. Maine. I had heard that I've never hunted Maine. I know it's obviously a great rough grouse hunting destination. I had heard from a lot of folks, mainly before the season, that unlike a lot of Great Lakes grouse hunters who were optimistic, optimistically looking towards the season based on winter conditions last year and leading up to the season i know the folks in maine were concerned about lots of rainfall in the spring i think i think i've heard some from a few people kind of what that translated to that the hunting was not great but what was your experience like in maine this year that exactly so what ended up happening if people remember in the news like maine new hampshire vermont got torrential torrential rain and flooding for long periods of time. Yep. And so we figure that young birds didn't survive and the hatch didn't survive. So it was, it was slow. Like, I mean, Maine, I don't know about where, where you are, Nick. I, we don't do it in New York, but people like road swatting grouse mm-hmm. and like you just drive around and there's a grouse. Oh, shoot them. In New York, you got to find them and work for them and be lucky to get one. <laughs> So, there's, there's plenty and, of that in Minnesota and, and Wisconsin for sure. And I, and I always knew like we sort of share that the casual grouse hunting, if you will, we share that with Maine in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So, so we get there, it's me and my buddy, Nick, who we talked about earlier and our two dogs. And we show up to this state land. It's massive. It's called the great North woods. I think. Like we're kind of near New Brunswick. I mean, we're way up there. I remember talking about, and when you say Great North Woods, I mean it almost sounds like a uh, like a fictional thing, but it's that's a it, real that's block a real place. of forestry, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so we show up, and you got to pay like fifty bucks a day yeah. or yeah. a weekend. So we show up, we talk to the lady at the desk, and she's like, "Are you a heater hunter?" And in a thick Maine accent, I go, "What'd she say? What is? What is that?" <laughs> And what she meant is, are you hunting from your truck? <laughs> no, we're not doing that. She's like, good, because you won't find a single grouse. Wow. Like, Never heard that one so, before. Yeah. So she's like, they are just, we just had such a poor yep. year that there aren't even birds hanging out on the roads for the casual heater hunter. And we had to work for it. Day one, we got skunked. It also came down to us remembering that we're not where we are at home and we can't look for what we would look for at home. We've got to just put boots on the ground and- try day two we had better success and i think we killed or two and but you know a bunch more flushes and dogs had good contacts and and got some shooting and got some then day three we really got the covers dialed in and and we each got one and then we tag teamed you know as we were like walking out dog slam point bird goes up and we both pulled the trigger like hey i got him and he's like you shot yeah i shot i love that (laughs) yeah classic yeah but you know we just had an awesome time it was a great adventure we saw moose we saw you know really nice people just awesome adventure very low bird numbers but it didn't take away from us wanting to go back. We right. just kind of made a comment like maybe we'll wait three or five years and let 
it rebound so that we can because every it's the mecca. Same thing when I went to Michigan a couple years ago. You're going to the mecca. Everyone talks about the UP. Everybody talks about Maine. And you drive 15 hours to get there, and I could have killed more in my <laughs> my home covers, right, right, than than that. So you don't want to say you were disappointed, but you were just hoping for more, mainly for the dogs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't care to kill more. I just wanted the dogs to do more. No, that's that's interesting. And again, like you know, that Maine is a place where there is an abundance of habitat, and that's what these birds need to weather the ebbs and flows of you know Mother Nature has her say and. She knocked them back this year, but they're still there. And with any with any luck, they'll they'll bounce back. With the conditions provide because the habitat's there ultimately. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Very cool. All right, buddy. Well, let's let's wrap this up and and circle back to you and some of the things that you do. And I know you got a little little offer for the listeners, so why don't you point everybody towards where they can go to learn more about you, check out the podcast, and more importantly, lean into some of those resources and things you provide for folks looking to train their dogs better. Awesome, man. Well, first off, thanks for making this happen. I always enjoy talking with you and talking dogs with you. And I'm really excited to spend time with you at CWE. And I hope if anyone's listening and is in this area, they come and see us. Yeah, please come on down. Um, Please. Then, you know, again, everyone who tuned in, I appreciate you listening to me and him chit-chatting about dogs. You can find me on Instagram that is at Lone Duck, L-O-N-E-D-U-C-K. YouTube is Lone Duck Outfitters. So if you're looking to train a retriever or even just want to watch some content to maybe diversify your versatile dog, that would be a great resource for you. If you've got a short hair and or drot or whatever and you want to play in NAVDA, it, our, our retriever training style will help you get to where you want to be playing that game or duck hunting with your so YouTube, Instagram, we do have a Patreon. I know you have a Patreon, Nick. You know, I kid around. It's like buying me a beer. If I help, if I can help you with your dog on a given topic that you're struggling with and we are sitting at a bar, you'd probably be like, you know what? Let me grab this round. And so, you know, for five bucks and I can help you and your dog and build a better relationship with you and your dog. And then lastly, which maybe we can put it in the show notes, we'll drop a link, but I do have an online training course for Force Fetch. So if you and your dog want to dive into this process, you know, some people call it the trained retrieve, but force fetch, if you want to dive into it, wintertime is the best time to do it Mm -hmm. so that your spring and summer training is off and running. It's five or six different dogs, different breeds, different personalities going through the process so that it's basically let me help you so that you can teach your dog how to do it. Troubleshooting, all that stuff. So it's like an hour and a half of watching me force fetch dogs, but from start to finish, from hold all the way to going to the ground and birds and all that stuff, it's very comprehensive, easy to follow. And I really just want people to have the dog that they've always dreamed of. And so we built this course for that. And so you're going to get a code for 20% off. The code will be birdshot. And maybe we can just put that in your show notes. So if they're intrigued by it, they can use it and save a little bit of money and help them with their dog. You bet, buddy. I will, I will do that. I will mention it in the intro as well. If, if folks, if they buy access to the course and they're doing it and going through it and then they run into roadblocks questions, do they then have access to you to kind of, to email you and ask questions or that kind of thing? So that's where I would just point them to Patreon and say, you know, 
for five bucks. I mean, that, and really what I do tell people is I, I still am here to help you. Like, yeah. I don't need a, a $5 bill. I just want to help people. But yeah, Patreon, Instagram, all those are ways that people can get one-on-one help where I can really dissect and say like, oh, this is an easy one here. It's a one sentence answer. Or like, I need you to send me a video. I Let's actually have a 20 minute conversation and work through this struggle and yep. then let's move forward. So it's all what people need, but I am I am here to help. I love helping people. It's why I got into it and it's a way to give back. And so that's why we're doing it. Good deal, brother. Well, I appreciate you as always. Can't wait to connect with you in a couple of weeks. I'm looking forward to heading down to the Southeast. That will be a blast. Thanks for your time today. Hang on with me for just a minute. That does it for this episode of the Bird Chat Podcast. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Bird Shot Podcast presented by Onyx Hunt, Final Rise, and Upland Gun Company. Don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, and share. And if you really love the show and want to contribute above and beyond what you already do by listening, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash birdshot. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you on the next episode of the Bird Shot Podcast. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app. Join millions of other hunters who trust Onyx Hunt to find more game, discover new access, and hunt smarter. Onyx Hunt shows you nationwide public and private land boundaries. They've got topographic and 3D maps. You can track your route, location, and elevation profile. You can save maps for offline use and take Onyx Hunt with you wherever you go. The most comprehensive hunting tool you'll own Download the Onyx Hunt app today and use the promo code BSP20 to save 20% on your next Onyx Hunt subscription. Know where you stand with Onyx. Hey everyone, this is Nick from the Gundog It Yourself podcast. If you enjoyed this show, then you might want to check out my show as well. We highlight and break down the ins and outs of training your own hunting dog. Whether it's a bird dog or even the occasional hound dog episode, we cover all topics related to hunting dogs. Check out Gundog It Yourself on any podcast streaming platform and hit the subscribe button to be sure not to miss any future episodes.